Hey everybody, welcome to episode 30 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Today we will be heading to jolly old England to talk to 20-year-old Alex Staniforth. That's right, 20 years old. He is the youngest person to be on the show yet. But do not let that dissuade you. At 20 years, he has accomplished quite a bit. The nice thing about today's show is that it kind of represents everything that I like to think this show stands for. It's a great story about how getting active and setting goals in your life can completely change the life you live. Alex grew up in Cheshire, England and suffered from a stutter and epilepsy and being bullied. He was completely not interested in sports at all. And as you'll hear in the show, at a certain point, his perspective shifted and he decided to stop being afraid of the world that he lived in and to take control of those things and embrace those things and set big goals for himself. And so he's gone from this unassuming child to a very accomplished 20-year-old who has attempted Everest twice, who has become a sponsored adventurer, a charity fundraiser, a public speaker, and a published author with his recent book release. I've said on the show before that I like to avoid doing Skype interviews. I like to do person-to-person interviews as often as possible. And we did actually try to make that happen. There was possibly a chance I could somehow get to England and record this. But in the end, it just did not turn out to be feasible. So we did end up recording this on Skype after all, but I don't think it stopped it from being a damn good show. So let's go talk to Alex Staniforth about overcoming his childhood adversities and attempting Everest twice in two of its most tragic years on the mountain. I'm Alex Staniforth. I'm a 20-year-old adventurer, author, and fundraiser from Chester in England. I've tried to climb Everest twice, two summit attempts, um, both of which became part of the biggest Everest disaster in history with the avalanches in 2014 and 15 when I was 18 and 19. Nowadays, I, you know, I not only do, do these adventures, but I use my experiences and my story to inspire people through my motivational speaking, through my book, which has recently come out, and just in general trying to really prove to others that they can overcome their own Everest in life. Everest has been my biggest goal for the past, well, for quite a a few years now. I mean, of course, I'm only young. I found a passion for the outdoors when I was about 13 or 14, and I guess it's led from there, really. But it's a bit of an unusual background. I wasn't a typical adventurer. I had epilepsy when I was a child. I had a bad stammer, which I've had since I've been about three or four years old, despite being a speaker. Badly bullied at school, no real confidence, mental health and anxiety problems. And I hated sport and all these sort of things. You would be surprised if I was to, you know, be adventurous or try and climb Everest. And I guess I found the outdoors by chance and found a way to overcome adversity to to really find my true self and to prove prove myself and prove all the bullies wrong and Everest was the biggest thing of all to overcome so I guess it brings me to where I am now um, having been to the Himalayas three times still aiming high and just seeing where the journey takes me really so that's interesting you mentioned the epilepsy and you mentioned being bullied do you think those are things that inspired you to start seeking these outdoor pursuits. You said around 13, you you kind of found the outdoors. You're 20 now. You've said you've tried to climb Everest twice. You're a motivational speaker. Those are a lot of things for a 20-year-old to have accomplished already. So do you think the bullying and the epilepsy were kind of motivators that have pushed you to say, look, I need to prove myself to myself and maybe to others also? Yeah, I would definitely agree. And I think... At the moment, I still have this this kind of massive drive to achieve and do as much as I can. And although I may be slowing down a little bit and with age, getting more perspective and, and, and focus in being able to sustain what I'm doing. But I think when I found the outdoors, I was invited hill walking with a friend in the Lake District and something I'd never really done before. And it was out of there that I asked myself, myself a simple question where is Mount Everest and that was how I guess it started and 
I guess I took small steps and my confidence grew with each step. And although I've not had a seizure for 10, 11 years, the epilepsy was the, was the catalyst for all the other problems. And not so, much, not so much the bullying that happened anyway, but I think all these things gave me a real lack of confidence. And it, it was the outdoors that gave me the confidence. And I found a buzz and a sense of, a sense of achievement and a sense of self-worth that I never really felt before. So I'd definitely say if it wasn't for the epilepsy and the bullying, I think, I think there was a, a drive to achieve, a drive to, to prove to others that I can achieve things and just to keep on proving to myself, you know, that I can, I can achieve things. And a bit of a perfectionist is, you know, it's never enough. I have to achieve more and more and more. And definitely, I think it's all part of the same parcel. So I'd like to talk about the epilepsy for a second, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. So I think a lot of people have a misconception of what epilepsy is. I know particularly when I was growing up, there was this concept that epilepsy was someone trying to swallow their tongue, which most people now know is not an accurate description, but I'm sure a lot of people still don't really understand what it is. So do you want to describe for the audience what epilepsy is and what a seizure is like. I've never heard the thing about, you know, about swallowing the tongue. Um, I that's, mean, because you're, that's because you're 20. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you're um, a little older, you would have probably heard it. Yeah, I mean, I guess epilepsy, I, I was very fortunate. Some people have, have a, you know, have a, a daily battle. I only had a, a handful of seizures and normally, you know, you get them more frequently. And with medication uh, and treatment, I, I managed to stop medication and obviously I've been free since. But when I had them, I had seizures that just struck at any time. And of course, a seizure, I guess, is a loss of control. And to be honest, I don't I don't know an awful lot about them because it happened when I was younger. And I guess I grew up without really knowing why it happened. I just accepted it. But basically, all I recall of having the seizures is they happen at any moment you can't predict them you, you you're kind of aware of them happening in the last couple of seconds you go lightheaded you feel sick you feel nauseous you your head spinning you've got loss of control there's a sense of panic and then you, you tend to have a bit of conscious awareness while they're happening and they're pretty terrifying thing um especially for people around you i remember one happening when i was at school and you know shaking under the table you know you shake very very violently and for, not for particularly for a long time but there's various types of epilepsy you know there's all sorts of of you know there's all you know there's all sorts of variations and i had quite a mild one but a seizure it just leaves you feeling absolutely horrendous for quite a few hours of course if i still had them i don't think i would be able to to do what i do now because you know if you started to have a seizure and and shake and have a fit where you know where you lose control and and your eyes roll to the back of your head and to do that on Everest when you're on a rope or something like that would would be potentially fatal so i guess epilepsy really it's a very a sort of an episode of of violent shaking is is probably the, the most clear sign really um but before they happen you feel very lightheaded and it's oh it's just a hor horrific feeling really i'm sure it was particularly frightening for your family your parents did they limit the activities you did for fear that you might have a seizure at some point? They didn't. They were really good, but I was always supervised for a while, um, you know, for quite a few years. But to be honest, I didn't do a lot anyway. I wasn't really sporty. I wasn't particularly active. And I used to hate sport. And obviously now I can't really live without it. But I think that was why the outdoors surprised them, because these are sort of things that I would never have normally had the confidence to do for it wasn't so much the epilepsy itself that scared me. It was it was all the treatment that I had. It was going to hospitals all the time, and 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 I think at a young age, you know, it really knocked my confidence. And the outdoors was kind of a freedom from that. Whereas for many years, I was afraid of being out of the house without my parents being there. You know, just in case I had more seizures. And when really I should have just been out having fun. So it kind of sounds like the fear was maybe even more on your side instead of their side. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a friend of yours got you to go hill walking at 13. And apparently that was a catalyst for a change. So where did you go after that? What were what were you inspired to do from there? I think the Everest dream started simply from seeing a photo of Everest and just being fascinated and amazed at just the size of it and the fact that people had climbed it. Obviously, Everest has that special allure of, you know, being the highest there is and all that. But I think for a while, I was just trying more and more extreme sports, trying to find more stuff that I could do and experience. So, you know, I'm now a qualified scuba diver. I try paragliding, rock climbing, bouldering, running, mountain biking. 
um, diving with sharks, all these various things, and just trying to really do more and more. And then I found about fundraising, and I kind of combined some of my outdoor challenges with with fundraising, and I got a huge buzz from combining the two, and kind of got this buzz and this almost drug for it that made it really hard to just kind of go back to normal. All along, I was I was kind of aiming towards Everest. I knew it. It, I had to approach it pragmatically and take the steps. Uh, Everest, of course, is no playground. You know, you need the years and the experience to get yourself in the best possible state of mind and body. I remember asking somebody for advice, and one of the first things I did was to climb Mont Blanc, the highest peak in the Alps, which I did when I was 17. That, for me, was the first major step towards my goal, but, of course, I had to do a lot more. At this point, Everest was one of those things that would just happen one day. I went for a bad case of depression because I was I was running quite competitively training six days a week and trying to get better and better and then I picked up this injury which put me out for nearly a year and a half and suddenly I couldn't go in the outdoors I couldn't do all these things that I loved doing so I kind of lost my my new purpose and sank into a major rut really and I remember reading the book by Bear Grylls and how he climbed Everest 18 months after he broke his back and that for me was the inspiration that I needed and there and then I just decided that 2014 would be the year that I'd climb Everest. Uh, that was my chance. And I mean, it's a long story about why that decision was made, but I realized I had 18 months to, to put the final steps in place in terms of fundraising, in terms of the training and everything else. Um, I didn't even know if I'd ever train again, let alone train in time to climb the world's highest mountain. But it was simply committing to it. It was setting the date that really changed everything and made it happen, really. I guess from there, uh, I was in the Himalayas in 2013 for my first training expedition uh, to try and climb a 7,000 metre peak called Bruntsi, um and then Mirror Peak, which is a little bit smaller, to get myself some, some serious altitude experience doing stuff in Scotland and stuff in the Alps. But the fundraising itself was uh, as, as big a challenge, really. Um, so I guess that brought me up to Everest the first time. So you decided fairly young that you wanted to climb Everest. I'm sure you told people, hey, I'm going to climb Everest. What were their reactions? Did people support you? Did people think you were crazy? Did people laugh? Yeah, of course, I did tell people because I needed to raise the money. I needed to raise the awareness and just get support. So, yeah, I got mixed reactions. You know, of course, at that age, I was 17 when I kind of came up with the idea. I was still at school, you know, I was still in sixth form, which is kind of like, you know, our version of college. At the time, um, the majority were supportive. There was, of course, quite a few critics. My parents said, you know, I needed to focus on school. Some people said, you know, it's a lot of money to spend on a holiday. And if Everest is a holiday, I want my money back, you know. (laughs) Um, I need my beach towel. Uh, I mean, for example, I went off and spoke to everybody I could. You know, for everything I didn't know, I find somebody who did and learned as much as I could. And some top adventurers and polar explorers who asked for advice told me that, I mean, specifically not, you know, not so much a challenge, but on the sponsorship that it was going to be impossible. I wasn't going to find the funds, um, but I wanted to kind of prove them wrong. In terms of the scale of the challenge, I mean, most people were obviously very impressed uh, a lot because most people don't really know what Everest really involves. Um, from a mountaineering point of view, I mean, most people, you know, a lot of mountaineers don't like Everest. It has a, a bad press and there were there was a lot of criticism there but in terms of the general public you know everyone was very supportive and in terms of finding sponsors yeah i, I got a huge amount of support um but of course everest had a uh, a bad rap in the past few years and i knew i had to work around that a lot of the top adventurers were really supportive though in terms of giving me advice for every skeptic i had i had 10 more people cheering me on really yeah i think the average person says things like oh, I want to go do this, I want to go do that, and or one day I want to do this. And often what that means is, I'm never really going to get around to doing this. So I think when someone hears something as large as, hey, I'm 17 and I'm going to go climb Everest, a lot of people's reaction in their head is, oh yeah, right, sure, ha ha ha. Yeah, they don't take yeah, you seriously. A, absolutely, yeah. And one thing I actually put in my book, and I got quite a lot, is when I, I mentioned Everest, I mean... I didn't go around shouting it in the street, but when people you know, <laughs> you you know, didn't just, talk about you didn't it. just scream into yeah. the air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, what a lot of people did say, their, their instant response was, oh, do you mean Everest Base Camp? And I'm like, no, I mean the top, you know, and that's what everyone's <laughs> response was. And w- w- when you say the top, people are just like, yeah, well, 
uh, as you say, yeah, right, sort of thing. But to be honest, that that spurred me on. The most important thing was was keeping belief in myself. Really, it's funny too. Sometimes the naysayers are exactly what you need because they say like, yeah, you're never going to do this. And you're like, I'm going to prove you wrong. And every time I feel like I want to give up, I'm going to remember this person that said, you're never going to do this just so I can prove to them that I am. Yeah. And I guess it's not so much about, I think the best thing is proving yourself wrong, but you know, it's not so much about being big headed or anything. I think it's just when people try and put you down, it's, it really is, you know, I think there's a lot of naysayers in life and uh, they shouldn't, get in the way of people doing what they say they can't do so <laughs> i think it's important that we that we don't pay too much attention but of course with everest there's a fine balance you've you've got to take advice it, uh, everest kills people and it's about listening to the right people who will help you achieve your goal safely well hopefully sometimes in those naysayers see someone accomplish something they don't think they would hopefully they stop for a moment and maybe rethink and maybe stop being naysayers in the future i would hope so yeah and i've experienced that you know people who people who kind of said it wouldn't happen or said you know that's a lot of money to raise and how are you going to raise that much are now surprisingly really supportive you know it's almost like they're creeping back in but that's that's normal. You know, I'm very fortunate that I've had a lot of people believing in me from the start. So you've mentioned fundraising and we all know, or at least I think a lot of people know that yes, indeed, trying to climb Everest is highly expensive. So do you want to give us some numbers, how much it cost and how you went about raising that money? Yeah. So typically a Mount Everest expedition on the south side, and that's funding a place on a commercial expedition. So by commercial expedition, you know, a, a guide or operator will, for example, cover all the, all the, all the logistics, the, the permit fees, the, you know, getting enough food, supplies, equipment, tents, staff, their guiding fees, visas, etc., etc. You're looking about probably about £30,000. So in dollars, about $50,000. That doesn't include gear uh, or flights. Now, gear, um, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate I'm sponsored by Marmot and Craghoppers, uh, so I can get it cheaply. But gear you're probably looking at about four thousand pounds maybe five thousand pounds just for all the equipment oh well and then if you count all the fundraising expeditions and all the training costs and everything else you're probably looking at uh maybe sixty five thousand dollars in total the thing is some some guides obviously charge a lot more you know because they have more experience etc and then there's some operators you know cheap ones in nepal who have a bad reputation they give everest a bad name because they're the ones who tend to lose the clients by cutting corners they could be as little as say 20 or thirty thousand dollars you don't want to have the most inexpensive doctor you don't want to have the most inexpensive dentist and you don't want to have the most inexpensive everest guide right absolutely yeah but equally i think there's there's some guides you know who who for example would charge less for their service but give you the same as somebody who who's got a good name but charging say $30,000 more just for their brand name. So it's a case of finding the, the, the right amount of support. You know, it's, it's, having, it's having enough oxygen on summit day. It's having good experienced Sherpas around you. It's having a good leader, good food. You know, the cheaper trips tend to not have the medication. They tend not to look after their Sherpa staff. They tend to have really bad food and bad equipment. And they're the people who tend to lose clients. So you, you could spend less than that, but I would strongly not advise it. You know, I was sort of priced midway. I had good support around me. Um, but Everest, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a lot of money. That's a lot more than a typical uh, adult would earn in the UK. And of course, I was 18 at the time. So in terms of fundraising it, it was mostly funded by corporate sponsorship. In a nutshell, corporate sponsorship is obviously businesses becoming part of the journey. And in return, they, you know, they gain from the marketing the advertising, the staff motivation, the, the CSR, it, and a whole host of things. It's a case of, you know, trying to make yourself stand out, trying to get them to to believe in your dream. You know, it's, you know, they have to get something in return. To find the sponsorship took me probably, probably a year and a half, you know, maybe a little bit less. And I left school and I pretty much worked on it full time. I worked part time in a restaurant. I was washing dishes, you know, doing the hard craft just to basically pay for my own costs, you know, to, to support myself. But there was nothing else on top of that. You know, I didn't really socialize. I didn't go on holiday. I, I just, my life revolved around Everest for a full year. Uh, I wouldn't even go out with friends for the sake of every hour was an email that I could send to a business. And I must have contacted over a thousand businesses in the space of one year, just just trying to, to you know, 
sell the sponsorship package to them, really. What was your angle? Was your angle that, hey, I'm very young and I'm going to try to summit Everest at a very young age? Or was there another angle there? With with sponsorship, I mean, I guess I'm not going to give too much away because I need the sponsors. But <laughs> I think, um, I mean, sponsorship is a very competitive game and it's very much a numbers game. Um, but you've got to have a USP. You've got to have a unique point to stand out because there's a lot of people want to climb Everest. There's a lot of people trying to get sponsors and businesses are getting inundated. So you've got to, you, you've got to make a good approach and you've got to have something in it for them that, that stands out. Now with me, definitely age was, was, was key. The fact is I came from a typical background, you know, I, I didn't just have a rich parent giving me, you know, a check as has happened with other climbers, you know, my parents were supportive, but they weren't going to fund it. And I think people, businessmen had a lot of respect for, me trying to do something so young and also trying to do it off my own back. But I think Everest has this special allure with sponsors. You know, it's the highest there is. They get their their, their brand, their, their logo on, on top of the world. It's different to other marketing. And I think my age was, was definitely key to, key to that, really. So you tried for quite a long period of time, contacted lots of businesses, and eventually your fundraising worked. So did you raise all of the funds you needed or did you have to supplement them in another way? No, I mean, now I'm a motivational speaker, but that wasn't really paying me anything at the time of the first trip. Yeah, pretty much all of that. Well, in fact, all, yes, all of it came from corporate sponsorship. So I had sponsors as big as, say, £10,000 um, and as small as £100. So obviously, the more they invest, the more they would get in return. And I, I had a big job trying to manage it. I had to kind of take everything I could, but equally try and keep it as, as good value for the businesses. So yes, I did get it through a big variety of, of businesses of all sizes and shapes. And four weeks before the trip, I had £8,500 still to raise. And nobody was going to bail me out. You know, it was becoming pretty desperate. And one meeting, you know, one simple email um, led to that decision being made and found the second major sponsor. So yes, I did get it all in the end. Second time round, I mean, obviously, I I lost all the money. I had to start pretty much from scratch and 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 raise it all over again. And second time round, it was easier because I managed to keep some of the same businesses who, fortunately, sponsored me again. And I had more experience, you know, and I, I knew the tricks of the trade by then. What are some of the things that you were required to do as part of your agreements with your sponsors? It varies, but for example, if I'd summited, I would have put their their logo on a banner and obviously got a photo on top of the world with their banner they get that prized shot which obviously has a massive marketing value it's the, the it's the picture that's used in the media and it's just really good exposure for the brand they will get linked to my website they get mentioned in my social media they get photos they get talks to their staff i mean there's a whole host of things really it's um it's just trying to get them involved in the journey so you raise the funds and Last minute scrape by, and you know that you are now going to head into the Himalayas and attempt to summit Everest. So tell us a little bit about that first day there and then the subsequent days afterwards. So 2014, it was the end of March, heading off and about to really achieve my dream. You know, I can't tell you how proud that felt. Everything started really well. You know, I was really confident. I was strong. I'd done all the training I could do. And really just enjoying the experience, enjoying the buzz, enjoying the anticipation. Well, we start our walk to base camp, which takes about three weeks to give us time to acclimatize and to adjust to the altitude. Enjoying this magical part of the world with magical people. You know, you know the Sherpas are truly amazing. A day before we arrive at base camp, there's a major avalanche in the Kumbu Icefall, which is the most, obviously the most dangerous part of the climb, the massive shifting glacier. And of course, that's when it all changes and the mood turns from excitement and preparation to one of mourning, really. When that avalanche occurred, did you continue on afterwards or did that end the trip? What happened then? Yeah, we, obviously we arrived at base camp and obviously kept our heads low. And it was a long, long and complex story, but basically 16 people, 16 climbing shippers sadly lost their lives in the avalanche. Um, they were just in the worst place at the worst time. We agreed a kind of a four-day period of mourning and obviously waited for that before we even started as a matter of respect for the Sherpas, obviously, who had gone back down to the villages. And then we didn't realise at the same time there was a political agenda, you know, there was a, an ulterior motive starting to creep in. And basically a, a small number of Sherpas hijacked the tragedy and as an opportunity to get some demands from the Ministry of Tourism. And the, 
you know, what was a, a massive tragedy then became a second tragedy because they basically bit the, ha- bit the hand that fed them. Effectively, they, they wanted to make all these demands to the Ministry of Tourism, which, you know, which is unsurprising. You know, I, I agree with them doing that. But the only way they could achieve that was to hold the mountain to ransom and effectively stop the whole season. It got out of hand. In the end, intimidation and threats were being made by Sherpas to the other Sherpas that if they climbed, they were going to get hurt. And obviously, we can't risk them. We knew that even if we climbed without them, there was still a risk of them being being hurt and threats are taken very seriously. And after a week, the situation was, was getting worse. Teams were packing up and going home. And after yeah, after that time, we realised we had no choice but to leave because the route needed to be repaired. The Sherpas couldn't climb because they were put under threat. They got what they wanted from the government. Effectively, you know, they had to affect their own kind because obviously Sherpas lost out on work because of it because everybody headed home five weeks early nobody summited for the first time I think it was 1970 something um, at least from the south side it was fine on the north and yeah it was a complete, it was a complete mess really it was it was the biggest kick in the teeth I mean of course we, we got back safely and that's the important thing but the Sherpas lost out more than anybody and even though they got their demands they had to do it by hitting the government where it hurt the most which was their pockets because so much money comes into the area from Everest tourism. So obviously things much larger than you occurred. Yes. Yeah. 16, 16 people died. A huge social and political event was occurring. All these things are far beyond your own personal trip. But that being said, you had spent all this time raising all this money so that you could get there to do this. You must have been rather disappointed. Yeah, that's fair to say. I mean... <laughs> Of course, you know, it's important to, it's important to, I I think obviously on reflection, I think it was the right thing to happen in terms of going home. And um, obviously we were lucky to come back and 16 people wouldn't. But yeah, of course, it was a big kick in the teeth. It's something that we couldn't train for and we couldn't predict. And it was the politics of the situation that that was was the biggest shame. Um, However... On reflection, I see it as a positive thing for me personally because it gave me a chance to learn from experience and to become even more prepared to go back the following year. Um, but yeah, at the time, you know, I got home and I, it was, um, yeah, I didn't really know how to feel. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if I wanted to go back. I didn't know if I could go back. And all these fears came to nothing. But yeah, it took a while to really get myself going again. It's interesting because you've probably spent all this time preparing for all these things you would expect weather, environment, difficulty with altitude adjustment, all these things that you can prepare for. And then you you arrive and things that you probably never even considered as potential problems arose and brought the trip to, to an end. So in a certain way, I guess you probably learned a lot about dealing with unpredictability. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, that's that's mountaineering. You know, it's, it's kind of a big game of Russian roulette and it can be Pretty, pretty dangerous at times as I found the following year and of course for the f- first year of the avalanches um, yeah you know you kind of understand what's important but I think what I've learned is no matter how hard you work you know you know you don't always get to stand on top of the world and that's true to all of us in life we all we all have our setbacks and hurdles and certainly taught me a lot about that and made me realize you know how much I wanted it whether I wanted it enough to you know do it all again but you know i think it, it certainly teaches you management of disappointment and you kind of stop complaining about things you realize that sometimes things can come crashing down but the most important thing is how you respond to that yeah i think that's a great point there and i i agree that that's one of those things that i've also taken from doing more things in the outdoors is kind of gives you this sense of perspective on what's truly important and that the way you respond to something is just as important as what you do to deal with it. When did you decide that you were going to go back and try again the next year? I think on the walk out of base camp, I already sort of knew I I would go back um, deep down, but I think I'd come that far. And although I'd I'd, I'd given all that stuff to get there and as you say, all the time and sacrifice and effort, it would seem more of a waste not to actually get there and, and put an end to it really by buried in the summit especially because it gave me so many opportunities so within I guess a week or two I sort of knew um, I came back and I had salmonella which I picked up in Kathmandu which kind of clouded my judgment for a while I saw it as, 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 as a chance to kind of come back stronger but I, I didn't want to approach it in the same way and that's when I came up with, with the Epic 7 project which was basically the idea was a series of seven ultra endurance challenges to 
push myself mentally and physically to get an even better shape for my next attempt and also fundraise for the Sherpas who died in the avalanche. So these challenges are obviously all kind of, well, mostly solo, um, cheap and low budget. And the idea of that was simply the only thing that could fail, the only thing that could really let me down was me myself. Because I kind of missed the buzz of achievement. You know, it had been a few years since I stood on top of Mont Blanc. And of course, I've been stopped by objective factors, you know, things out of my hands. And I wanted to, to do something where it was simply a case of me pushing myself. And that was how the Epic 7 started, really. And that would bring me all the way back to Everest 2015. So what exactly is the Epic 7? That was just the name I kind of came up with. But basically... Just to give you an example of a few of the challenges that were involved, I guess epic in terms of just the scale of them. I mean, a couple of the challenges, uh, one of my favourites was cycling from Chester to Chamonix in the French Alps. So that's uh, 880 miles in eight days, carrying all my own gear and not really knowing what the hell I was doing, just keeping on pushing south. And everything goes wrong from, from crashes to sleep deprivation to flat tyres to exhaustion and all, all, all sorts of things and it's just finding the, the mental grit to keep on pushing through that when you think you've got nothing left to give and for Everest that's that's invaluable other challenges there was climbing the highest peak in Switzerland um, the Welsh 3000s which is a 34 mile hike in Wales over here 14 peaks and about 12,000 foot of ascent uh, which I did in 18 hours it's just big endurance stuff either on the bike or in the mountains really but it certainly taught me an awful lot and gave me experience of, you know, knowing that I can keep cycling for 24 hours nonstop and just getting a good indication of what I'm capable of. So the next year's come around, you've raised all your funds, you've done your Epic 7 to prepare, yeah, and yeah. now you're going back. So what did your second attempt look like? I mean, this time around, I, I had I had the benefit of experience. I had, you know, more time to train. I had more confidence in my physical and mental state. And I think, to be honest, this time around, it was getting there. It was a little bit too easy. And I almost didn't have enough problems to deal with. And then I start to get suspicious that something's going to go wrong. <laughs> um, I, but I, I could just enjoy the build up this time because I knew I was going, you know, I got the funds so much more quickly and easier. And there was less panic and just a real sense of excitement this time it was a completely different ball game and uh this time around though when i when i was flying out there there was a i'd been absolutely fine until until the day i got on the plane and flew out there and i i just sort of i just kind of lost the control that i had i, I just kind of lost that confidence and I, I don't know whether that was almost because it had been going too well or whether i was thinking about what happened the year before i mean i soon got it back and i noticed the difference and noticed there were still things I had to work on but I just had a, a, a different mindset I was focusing on more on one day at a time and again you know this time everything started really well I, I, I think I was I was glad at that point that I had had the chance to come back and I think the year before I hadn't really been as ready as I wanted to be and now I, I felt that and I could just focus on enjoying it really this time we actually got a chance to start on a mountain I didn't mention before that the first year, we didn't actually step foot on Everest. So it was like the most expensive base camp trek in Everest history. <laughs> um, this time around, obviously, we had that chance. We were planning to go up to um, Camp 1 for the first time. But before that, we went in the icefall. A couple of days later, the day of the earthquake in Nepal, we headed up with the aim of reaching Camp 1, where we stay for one night, then Camp 2 for two nights before coming back down to base camp for a rest. Everest is climbed in rotations where you obviously progress up and down the mountain to adjust to the altitude. And there's about three in total before you go for the top. It's a long process and an Everest trip takes about two months and you're at base camp for, for four weeks, if not more. So we've been at base camp for a week and settled in doing well. We headed up to camp one and that day was just, it's just one of those days. I mean, altitude, I've been fine the first time in the icefall. You can't predict it. And... I just struggled all day. It was just a horrible, slow crawl. I felt like I'd never been on a mountain before in my life. It was just the way it is. You just have, have bad days for no real reason. We were carrying quite quite heavy loads to sort of stop the camp. And after maybe six or seven hours, I was, you know, I was nearly at camp. We, we'd left base camp about six that morning while the ice is more stable. I was just short of 6,000 meters, about the same height as the top of Kilimanjaro. Just focusing on camp, you know, just absolutely exhausted just pushing on one step at a time, keeping my head down, pulling on the rope. And I got over the more technical sections and moving on these big 
open blocks of ice. Just looking forward to getting to camp. Probably half an hour away. Um, I'm on my own at this point. Two guys on my team have raced ahead. Two are a bit, quite a bit behind me. Most people are already at camp. You know, the rest of our team were already at camp, and we were taking quite a lot of time because we were so, you know, finding it so hard up there. And I guess I was so tired that I didn't actually feel the ground shaking. I never even felt the earthquake. I just remember moving along on these kind of big flat blocks of ice in the in the valley, and the fog that day was so thick that I probably couldn't see maybe more than twenty meters away. I just remember hearing this massive cracking sound, like a, oh, it just e- echoed through the full valley. And I knew that was the sound of ice breaking off the mountain. This sickening, deafening crack just splitting through, you know, everything, you know, everywhere I could hear. And then I knew I'm in trouble. I know that's the sound, of, of course, of ice breaking off. And then behind it is this big distant rumble of an avalanche. Obviously, straight away, I know I need to get out of there pretty quickly. But there's nowhere to run and nowhere to hide because I'm on, you know, I've got these big crevasses either side of me. I'm on a rope. I can't run because it's so high and I'm so short of breath. All I can do is just move as fast as I can. And suddenly the adrenaline starts. I feel my heart pounding through to the floor. Uh, more energy than I'd, I'd had all day, you know, just thinking that I may be able to get out of the way. But I know on both sides, I've got these huge cliffs of the west shoulder of Everest and Nupsi on the other side and I'm in a similar position to where the guys died in the avalanche the year earlier on Everest so all sorts of thoughts are flashing through my mind but there's not much I can do but just move as fast as I can and then every few seconds I just keep stopping on the rope I kind of glance to my left as this deafening blast is coming towards me like an express train faster and louder all the time I can hear it but the thing is I can't see it (laughs) through the fog and I'm just trying to picture what's going on. Um, and at that point, I'd be going maybe a minute and I, I just keep I, keep I keep on stopping to look. And then at this point, I feel the sense of calm. I, I seem to think I've survived. I, you know, I, perhaps it's fallen behind me. It must have it must have hit me by now. So I must have escaped. And then suddenly I feel the air pressure change and the noise just gets suddenly louder. And then it just hits me with a massive whack like a like a snow cannon unleashed in my face froze me onto my knees the snow going down my throat i can't breathe from it you know going down my nose i have to turn my head away and gasp for air i can't see for this deathly white all around and the wind blasting through at 100 miles an hour probably you know unbelievable force and i'm just staggering around and for the first time in my life accepting this is it this is how i die and the most sickening feeling of pure fear like i could never describe pure helplessness that any second now it's all going to go black you know there's there's nothing i can do about it ice is going to bury me and i'm never going to be found and i can't describe that feeling of fear um and i never want to feel it again and of course this is just a power avalanche triggered by the earthquake i didn't know about the earthquake at this and it just keeps going through for maybe a minute you know it just keeps coming and coming think of my family think of everybody back home and after maybe this minute it just it just stops. The snow falls to the ground and the wind stops and the mountain falls silent and I'm covered in snow like some sort of yeti. I'm shaking, but I'm still alive. <laughs> I'm just in shock. And basically, this was a powder avalanche. So pretty harmless, but at least compared to what hit base camp. But believe me, when something like that hits you, you don't know it's harmless. Right, and you don't have any idea what's no, going on. you don't know. And of course, my first thoughts were that my team behind me were more directly hit and therefore hadn't survived. I get on the radio, I try to ring them, there's no response, I presume they're dead. Everyone at Camp 1 thought the same about us. They, they started a search party for the two guys who were quite far ahead of me. But they'd already agreed that because I was so far behind that I couldn't have survived or wouldn't survive the night. So when we turned up, they were just amazed. You know, they, they thought we hadn't made it. And uh, yeah, that's quite, still sends goosebumps on my arm now really. So what did you do immediately after you realized everything was over? You needed to get somewhere and figure out what was going on other than the get on the radio. The were buried, but a big pull pulled them out of, you know, about a foot of soft snow. So that was a relief. I just panicked. I mean, you know, I, I felt sick, like rising the back of my throat. I mean, that's not pretty, I know, but that's the gory details of it. I don't know. I mean, I, I realized what had happened. I just I knew I needed to get to camp as soon as I could before anything else came down and I just I was just in shock really all sorts of thoughts going through my mind I just raced to camp as soon as I could I came across two guys in my team who were ahead of me and 
there was hugs, there was tears, and their glasses were just like smashed by the force of the blasts. That's how powerful it was. We're all there freezing cold and, you know, as, as if we've been hit by a blast freezer, you know, and covered in snow and just hugging each other and just saying we all thought we were dead. And, well, they thought the same. And these guys are in the 40s and 50s and a lot tougher than me. You know, we were all in the same state. We get to the base of Camp 1 and they, they tell me, you know, that, well, we can see the first tents are flattened and there's people trying to dig them out. And our first first thoughts are, has anybody survived? Is it, you know, is everybody buried up here? But then we then go further into camp and realize that it was just a couple, that every everyone else was intact and everybody up, up here was okay. And I guess then it was we realized that we couldn't get down to base camp. The route had been destroyed and I guess then we're trapped to camp one. We just have to work out what's going on. Our leader, Rob, rang base camp and that was when it all changed because we heard on the radio, Henry, our base camp manager, saying complete chaos, destruction, everything's gone. And we're all like, what? I mean, what's going on? You know, how can an earthquake cause this? How is base camp gone? That's our home. That's all our stuff. What about everybody there? What about the Sherpas? What about everybody in the icefall? Um, and then we hear two of our Sherpa staff have died. And we just, we just kind of hear the panic in his voice. And we don't quite understand how this is affecting them. I mean, they were worried about us, but we're now worried about them. Um, all these different horror stories going through our minds, you know, has, has, you know, has the ground cracked open? We just can't work it out. Um, so for two days, we're stuck at camp one awaiting rescue. Really? We realized that the route was so damaged that the only way down was helicopter. Um, but there's 170 people above the mountain. Most people had gone up that day. So there's a lot of people there. We only have supplies for one night and we're told we could be there for a week. And I guess as a team, all we can do is, uh, make the best of the situation. And for two days, you've got more avalanches and more, sorry, you've got more aftershocks and therefore more avalanches, you know, you've got, and any one of them could just flatten camp as has happened in previous years. But all we can do is sit there and wait, you know, just nothing we can do about it. It must've been such a confusing experience because you're stuck there. You're getting limited information, basically what can come through on a radio Everywhere else, people are still trying to figure out what's going on as well. They have limited information also. People have died, some of which you knew, and you're concerned about your own safety and the safety of all of your teammates. And you said you were stuck there for two days? We were stuck there for, yeah, two nights. We flew flew very early the next morning. Um, some people got out before that, but to be honest, I was so ill from shock and just dehydration exhaustion that i just i just lay there for like a vegetable i barely left my tent um i didn't really know what was going on but yeah i mean there was a big confusion i mean i, I rang my mum home on the on the satellite phone and she's like hey you know how are you doing are you there yet and i'm like yeah there's been a slight problem um but oh, so is, she she didn't know she hadn't heard yet well to be honest she, i rang her within probably half an hour of being at camp one on my okay. satellite phone okay now gotcha. at, that, at that point the, the news of the earthquake and the avalanche on Everest kind of came home pretty quickly, but she, she didn't know anything about it by the time I rang her. And by the time I rang her, I didn't know anything about the earthquake and nor did she. And I remember her, you know, cursing me down the phone and I, I just had to reassure everything was okay. But that was when I, she told me about the earthquake when I was at camp one by a text message. Um, it's all a blur to me now. It, it's all very much a bad dream, but she didn't know, uh, although she probably knew about it before anybody. I was the only one on my team who had the satellite phone. So everybody borrowed it. Um, if, 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 I, if I didn't have that, our family wouldn't have known we were alive for two days or probably wouldn't have found out quickly and obviously would have made the ordeal a lot more traumatic for them. So you were helicoptered out two days later after spending another two days, as you said, with further avalanches and earthquakes and just dealing with all of the repercussions. As you flew out and on the subsequent days afterwards, did you have any desire to return or did you feel like you were done with this? I remember waiting for the helicopter and, I mean, being stood in the Western Coombe, which is most beautiful otherworldly place I'd probably ever been. I remember turning around to look at the Lotsu face and the rest of the valley and thinking I was glad I wasn't going any further. I was just, it, well, it looked grueling and just thinking, you know, I'm, 
I'm done. I'm not coming back to this place. I remember telling my mum that I'm not coming back. And I think just being so scared from my experience and secondly, just from, you know, things happening twice like, like they did. But on the way out of base camp, I remember, well, then we got down to base camp to find, of course, base camp had been hit by an even larger avalanche, like a, a tsunami of rock and snow and ice. And base camp's never been hit by an avalanche before. It was just unprecedented. And it was like a plane crash. We lost three of our Sherpa staff, Pasang Temba, Kumar and Tenzing. And that for us was the hardest thing to take. And had we been at base camp, we would not be here right now. I have no doubt of that whatsoever. So with all these things included, yeah, it certainly put me off. But I think, I think on the walk out, we we, we then spent four days walking out. Um, some people wanted to fly out, but I didn't want to take helicopters away from the rescue effort. You know, I wanted to, also wanted to support the local people by staying, you know, and eating with them and just trying to give ourselves some time before we got to Kathmandu and got in the way of all the chaos. And that gave me some time to think. But to be honest, on the walk out was just the most miserable four days of my life. I mean, every slight bang or noise I just had me jumping out of my skin, you know, and um, it wasn't until I got home that I think I, I think I knew deep down I was have to go back because I guess when you've given so much and been so close and I think it would, I think I owe it to the people who died, you know, and uh, people may not understand that, but I think I owe it to them that I have to go back and finish what I started to, when they've had their hopes and dreams taken away from them and I've been spared of mine. And I think I, I, all I can, you know, I won't know why I was spared that day, but I know I have to, to live my dreams to my best potential. So it's one thing to deal with an experience like that while it's occurring because you're basically in a survival mode and dealing with how to survive. But once you are free of that and you are back to safety, then you can sit back and reflect on it. What what was that experience like? Sure. Well, I mean, we got back to Kathmandu. I mean, obviously, as we walked out, we see the damage of the earthquake. And it's all a bit weird. It's, it's a blur to me now because it all seems surreal. It seemed... I was still in shock, you know. And um, I think... At base camp itself, those two days were, well, I mean, our camp was in the most directly hit area. You know, base camp's a large place and some teams are pretty much unscathed, but ours was just obliterated. Nothing was left. My tent was ripped around like a like paper, buried under a foot of, of hard snow. And most of the deaths that occurred at base camp, all 22 of them, happened very close to our camp or all the teams around ours. Our mess tent, where we w- would have been eating our lunch at the time the, the earthquake hit, was 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 thrown a hundred foot vertically in the air, and slammed down and just ripped apart. You know, s- solid steel. Some of our gear was thrown half a mile away just from the force of the avalanche, and nobody would have stood a chance. And it was, it, I think, it was seeing the damage and knowing that if we hadn't left that morning, we would have been there. And the last time we'd ever see those guys alive was at breakfast. You know, and it seems so unfair. I think seeing the damage, seeing stuff that wasn't pleasant, you know, and seeing blood and tents and just seeing such devastation and then going down to see loss and houses destroyed and suffering, just, it just, it made me angry. You know, why, why has this happened to these people? Not to, not to me. Why has it happened to them uh, twice, you know? And then to get to Kathmandu and see it again. And I think, I went to see some of the sites and, you know, that had been destroyed. And I guess I had to stay strong. You know, we had to spend two days at base camp before we left, just trying to dig and salvage and find as much gear as we could. And a lot, a lot of it had been damaged. We found most of it, but just trying to help in any way we could and, you know, find stuff and save money. And most of it was destroyed, though. For example, we found like $9,000 worth of oxygen masks, which our leader had lost because it was just scattered all over camp. And then, then we left, and uh, I think it wasn't until I got to the airport that it actually sunk in, that it actually hit me. And I just remember reading about a British trekker who died, and it just made me want to... Well, I was in the airport just about to burst to tears, and getting home and seeing my mum and stepdad, I just... I, I, I never felt more embarrassed. I couldn't explain it. I just didn't want to... I didn't want to be home. I didn't really want to be anywhere. I remember lying in my hotel and the ground shaking again and just saying, you know, come on, just kill me already. It was, it was hard really to, to reflect. It wasn't a relief of being home. It was just 
guilty you know what why was i home and why not them and the first few weeks at home were were really really hard actually and uh it still affects me today but you know everybody wanted to see me everyone was saying i'm glad you're safe and i just felt guilty really yeah that was one of the questions i was going to ask you is people often hear about survivor's guilt and it sounds like you did have to deal with that uh, is that something that just eventually mostly wore away or is it something that you actively had to do something to deal with it? I mean, some people were affected more than others and, you know, I, I think I dealt with it quite well. Um, yeah, there's always that element and even today, you know, it's still, I still think about it and I think it is what it is. You know, it happened. I was part of it. I have to deal with it. I can't let it hold me back. Um, it, it, it quite quickly improved, you know, if the first few weeks were tough, but I had the right support around me. I just had to throw myself into something and to, to throw myself into a purpose. And that was fundraising for Nepal. I found that was a tonic and writing my book helped me as well. And I guess really it's just a case of um, time is a good healer really, but there's definitely uh, the first few weeks were pretty miserable. Yeah, pretty tough. Um, nobody could really understand other than the people who've been there. Right. I imagine that's something very difficult to try to explain to people who have had no similar experiences yeah and I, th I think to have that experience at my age though i mean pretty young age i was 19 at the time but it certainly it certainly changed me uh made me well changed my personality in many ways but i think it's given me a good mindset to understand what's important and to try and achieve and really appreciate what's important in life. And I think that will only help me to live to my best potential for the future. At some point you decided that it would make sense to write a book. Is the book specifically about this experience or about everything that has led to it or a combination of those things? Writing a book was always part of my aim and I've always wanted to write one. And Icefall, uh, which is the name of the book, tells the full story, you know, the full true story of my journey all the way from... You know, from the epilepsy, from the early days, all the way to the end of Everest 2015, you know, it's the journey so far. Um, both my expeditions and Everest obviously focus heavily on, on, on the avalanches and experiences, probably kind of half my journey there than half of the expeditions. So I guess it tells a pretty unique account because not many people were there both years on the trot and obviously have a pretty unique experience to share. But it, it shares that journey through adversity to Everest, you know, the ups and the downs, the training, the sponsorship, the successes, the early, the early days, you know, getting through that. And then actually the adventure of the Himalayas, it's not really a mountaineering book. It's an autobiography and it just tells the whole thing. It's all true. It's been endorsed by Bear Grylls, which I'm really proud about. It's now on Amazon. It's been out for nearly a month. I'm doing signings in the UK, but it's also available um, in the, in the U S I'm selling signed copies and from Kindle and, I mean, really, it, it was great to be able to actually write the book. It took me about six months and it, it certainly helped me to be able to put, put it down on paper. People say it makes them cry, it makes them laugh and it shocks them. And it's just, it's everything, really. It, it's, it's, it tells, tells it as it is. It's got me to where I am now, really. Yeah, I imagine it was probably a bit therapeutic sitting down and dealing with those issues as you wrote the book after everything had occurred. Yeah, sure, totally. And so you say it's available on Amazon in the UK and the US. Yeah, and Kindle and iTunes and uh, signed copies, obviously. Um, I guess it would probably cost more to, to get one shipped to the States, but you can get signed copies from my website as well. Do you intend to return to Everest this year or next year? Well, the Everest season's just started now, and uh, no, I'm quite happy to be at home I will return to Everest. I mean, of course, there's more in my book, so I won't give too much away. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, even after that experience, it's become so much on my life. And I think if I don't do it now, I may never know. And people won't understand it, the risk. But to me, the biggest risk is taking no risk. And I've seen that life can be a bit like a Russian roulette. And I think sometimes it, you can't live in fear, you know, base camp has never been hit by an avalanche before. Normally, the people on the mountain are the ones at risk. And I think it just proves that things can come crashing down when you don't expect it. I think that's why we, we have, to have to live to our full potential. So, yes, I will be going back probably next year. I'm in the Himalayas in the autumn to try and climb another 8,000-meter peak, obviously not Everest. That's not been announced yet, but if you follow my updates, you'll find out more very soon. Um, that's another big expedition and should be quite an interesting challenge in the autumn so if people want to follow me they can follow me on twitter 
at Alex underscore Stanny Forth or my blog on my website, uh, alexstannyforth.com. But uh, there's definitely more to come from me on the adventure front, that's for sure. So I think we can probably go ahead and wrap it up. And I think a nice place to end this is anyone listening who's interested in doing something like summiting Everest or attempting something along those lines, do you have any advice for them how to get started or things maybe they don't know that they need to be prepared for? I mean, we all have our Everest, you know, Everest may not be everyone's cup of tea. They may want to go to the Arctic. They may want to, you know, they may want to run an ultramarathon. It's personal for them. And I think if Everest is is their thing, if they're they're interested, I think my advice for that would be they have to respect the mountain. You know, as I've learned, it's, it's a pretty serious place and even even when you're prepared you know it's still a pretty dangerous place to be you know just because i could get there doesn't suddenly mean everybody can and i don't know yet whether i i have what it takes to summit um but i think it's important to make sure no core corners of court that you have years of experience it's not just physical it's not about being good in the gym it's being able to look after yourself be competent to respect the mountain the mindsets so i guess i would say if ever you think Treat, treat, treat with respect for general challenges getting there is often as hard as actually doing it so i guess something that would apply for for both is it's not what you know but it's the people you've got around you and i couldn't have got to where i am without my support team so i guess i would say talk to everybody you know everybody know somebody or know something that can help you just build a great support team around you and the best way is just to start I don't really do uh, inspirational quotes, but I guess <laughs> I, I guess the the best advice, and this is what my story is really about, is just never give up. I guess <laughs> you don't have a poster of the little cat hanging off of the whatever it is that says "hang in there." You don't you don't have that sitting in your <laughs> office staring at you um, each day. <laughs> I have a, a poster of Everest in my room saying "Everest lived the dream," and I look at that every day. And I pulled it down after the avalanches, but it's back up again. I do on the opposite wall have a quote, the greatest suffering brings the greatest successes. And I'm yet to see the successes, but I'm, I think I'm getting there. <laughs> well, look, I really appreciate you taking the time today to talk to me. We're on other sides of the, of the, well, not other sides of the world, but we're separated by quite a distance and time barrier. So I'm glad you took the time to talk to me and to come on the show. I really do appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. You know, I've really enjoyed sharing it. And I hope you've enjoyed the story and thank you for a chance to, you know, to get the story out there really. And, you know, it's always good to be able to inspire others in the adventure world. So thank you very much for the chance. Yeah. And please keep in touch with us uh, when you do go back. I will be uh, definitely. Let me, let me know how it goes. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'll do that for sure. And um, yeah, you know, in the meantime, happy adventuring. I want to take a moment to thank Alex for sharing his stories with us so openly and honestly. At 20 years old, it's pretty easy to be very self-conscious and very concerned about how the rest of the world perceives you. So I think it takes a lot of courage to come on and just openly talk about yourself like that. So I'd like to thank Alex for doing that. I did recently read Icefall. So a lot of you may be thinking, "Ah, do I really want to read a book by a 20-year-old? Has he had that many life experiences? Is it really going to be that interesting? Well, you've just listened to this episode. So you've heard that he is an intelligent, well-spoken, thoughtful individual who has had a lot of life experiences. So if you found this episode interesting and you'd like to know more, that book delves much deeper into the subjects we talked about on this show. And I did find it to be a very worthwhile read. And anyone listening to this show who has children who are perhaps dealing with some of these similar issues, bullying or standing out and just being different and coming to terms with that or finding your place in the world will find a lot to be inspired by. I think adults will find things to be inspired by as well. But I especially think if you have children who are looking for someone to look up to, someone to inspire them to follow their passions, this is a good book to pick up. Icefall, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it elsewhere. It is in the U.S. Go pick it up. And everybody knows what time it is now. It's time to head on over to your internet device of choice and head to our website, gogetoutside.com slash podcast. Find episode 30, Alex Staniforth. Take a look at the pictures. We've got pictures, links, links to alexstaniforth.com, his Twitter page, his Instagram, his Facebook, and a blog post about his fundraising walk for Nepal where they collectively raised over 15,000 pounds. 
So head on over to the website, take a look at that. Do you want to get in touch with us here at the show? Maybe you want to drop us a line about this episode, a previous episode, a future episode. Perhaps you can see into the future and you know what's coming along and you'd like to discuss it before it happens. Well, you can do that. Go at butcherbirdstudios.com. That's how you reach us via email. Or you can give us a call, 818-925-0106. You can leave us a voicemail there. That is not going to ring my personal phone. I am not going to take your personal phone call, but I will respond to that phone call, probably with an email, maybe with a phone call, maybe here on the show. If you enjoy this show and you'd like to do us a big favor, something that I will greatly appreciate, then head on over to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you acquire this acquirable podcast. And do me a huge favor. Make sure you're subscribed, rate the show, and if you're a shining example of a great human being, write a review. Next time on the show... I promised at the beginning of this season that we would have some roundtable episodes where various people came together to discuss a single topic. Well, next time on the show will be the very first of those. We will be having some returning guests. So if you enjoyed the previous episodes with Pamela, Alden, and Shantae, and you will be happy to know they're returning to sit down with me and discuss solo backpacking. It's our longest episode. It's going to be over two hours. I hope everybody digs it. Come back in two weeks for that first roundtable discussion of solo backpacking. See you then.